0: He has performed mighty deeds with his arm. He has scattered those who are proud in their inmost thoughts. He's brought down rulers from their thrones, but he's lifted up the humble. He's filled the hungry with good things, but has sent the rich away empty. He's helped his servant Israel, remembering to be merciful to Abraham and his descendants forever, just as he promised our ancestors. Mary stayed with Elizabeth for about three months and then returned home. Let's pray. Lord God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, thank you that you're with us, Lord. Thank you that you're among us as we gather like this in this way, people of all generations, our amazing kids, people at every stage of life, Lord. These themes, the reality of Advent, strikes each of us. Ultimately, the reality of Advent is the same for all of us. We come together and we rejoice in the fact the God of the universe, the cosmic king, loved us enough to come and take on our humanity that we might have eternal life with you. This gives us hope. This gives us peace. This allows us to live with incredible joy. So Lord, I just pray that today as we hear about joy, as we learn about what it looks like to be a people of joy in the light of Advent, in the light of Christmas and also in light of the stark reality of our world today. We just pray, come Holy Spirit. Would you speak to us through your word? Would you speak to us through the words, Lord? Fill us and speak to the deepest places of our hearts today. Lord, make us mold us form us into a people marked by joy. We love you, Jesus, and we pray this in name. Amen. Alright.
1: Good afternoon. There's a lot of good afternoons. I feel like I'm losing you already. Good afternoon. I love it. I love it. Um, For those of you I haven't met yet, my name is Michelle.
0: It is my joy
1: to be up here with you today. And I don't know if you're aware, but there's this film backlot in language. Alder Grove, really. And you can tour this real Christmas town. It's a real backlog where they filmed some Hallmark movies. And they decided to open this up to the public. For a unique festive experience. For a price, of course. And when you step inside, there's brownstone apartments all decorated with Christmas lights. There's shops that you can enter into and buy actual goods. There's live music, caroling, and food. Murray had a great time. I saw all the pictures. My mom is still posting every day. She even recounted when she made snow angels at the town square because they had manufactured snow come out from the rooftops. And if you're not familiar with Hallmark movies, They are infamous for writing stories about women who find love at Christmas. In fact, a lot of the titles will say, at Christmas. Some of you might already be a fan, and I'm happy for you. But even if you're not a fan of Hallmark movies, they do hit at our intrinsic need to pursue happiness through love, and belonging and maybe you've heard it said before that christians should aim to be holy and not happy it makes for a really good sermon tagline and it's not wholly untrue but the subtext can often be god doesn't want us to be happy at all and that's not true happiness is circumstantial it's in the name things happen that make us feel happy and that is okay. Pleasure is similar, it's glandular. We want to feel pleasure and it's okay to feel pleasure, but sometimes we're bodily and chemically prevented from feeling delight, from feeling pleasure. And our circumstances don't often lead to happiness. In fact, the very opposite. Yet, there's this whole economy catered to our happiness and pleasure. Whether it's a pair of shoes, a piece of technology, or a relationship, we won't be happy or whole without it. And in the economy of happiness, there's always a price tag. There's always more to have. And when you cannot gain this happiness, you turn to the only other possible option, escapism. And there's plenty of that to go around. Between Hallmark movies, in our pursuit of happiness, and God's call for us to be holy as he is holy. Where does joy factor in? So am I not supposed to be happy? What do I aim for? What does joy look like? Is it manufactured or bought? And this exact question is what I hope we can answer and explore together today. Three things, three movements, surprise, surprise. Surprise. The first thing I want to ask is what is biblical joy? I would love to flesh that out for us this afternoon. And two, what about suffering? The question of suffering almost immediately comes after this talk of joy. And then hopefully I can land us in the third movement here, which is defiant joy. So, first, what is biblical joy? Joy is a really common theme in the larger narrative of the Bible. You can follow it like a thread throughout the journey of the chosen people of God, the Israelites. And in one important leg of their journey, God works freedom from their slavery. God hears their cries of agony. He raise the Savior from within called Moses to lead the Israelites out of slavery and out from under their oppressors, the Egyptians. This freedom was for something. It wasn't just freedom for freedom's sake, but freedom to be in relationship with the one true and living God, the creator of the universe. So some plagues later, they were let go. But not long after they left Egypt, Pharaoh changed his mind. He hardened his heart completely towards God. And in an act of defiance, he took his whole army to hunt down the people of God. Now, they were terrified. Death cornered them on every side. On one side, there was this huge sea, the Red Sea. They could not hope of crossing or building a boat in time. And on the other side, there was this vengeful ruler that was closing in. And then God delivered, just like that. They crossed as the Red Sea split before them. And on the other side of that deliverance, they sang this song. They celebrated. And even though they haven't yet entered into the land God had promised, if anything, they were only entering into the wilderness at this point. But in witnessing the great arm of the Lord saving, which is really just a metaphor of God working out this salvation and deliverance, and anticipating the fullness of their rescue, to them it was as good as done. This moment is recounted for us in a psalm. In Psalm 105, it says, he brought out his people with rejoicing, his chosen ones with shouts of joy. Sadly, however, their story from the Red Sea doesn't have a hallmark ending. It would continue they struggled and fumbled with their freedom they were out of slavery but slavery was still in them and in the story of scripture the israelites fall under different captors the babylonians persians and later the romans and though they struggled they were made hopeful stubbornly hopeful that god would bear his arm again and deliver them and bring them to the land where they can be free to be with god now this kind of hope, cultivated joy. Joy under circumstances, joy that wasn't instant like a microwave meal, nor was it ever painless like giving birth, but allowing their circumstances to point them to the living God again. And then silence. Four hundred years, God did not speak. That's the gap between the Old Testament and the New Testament. That's a lot of generations. That's a lot of unanswered prayers. That's a lot of prayers hoping that God would deliver them, but doesn't. And then 400 years later, God speaks again, and it's in a backwater town called Nazareth. An angel comes to a teenage girl named Mary, and then she was told she was to bear a child that would bring salvation to all people by raising a new savior like Moses right within Mary's womb. And this would happen by a (coughs) miracle. Now, miracle is a really good word for it because the angel said this would happen, this conception would happen without sexual intimacy or intercourse. It would leave anyone puzzled at the very least and troubled and panicked at the very worst. How is this going to happen? The angel answered in Luke chapter 1, The Holy Spirit will come on you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. So the Holy One to be born will be called Son of God. Even Elizabeth, your relative, is going to have a child in her old age, and she who was said to be unable to conceive in her sixth month. For no word from God will ever fail. You see, for Mary, if God said this would happen, nothing would be impossible. And so upon reflecting on this, she writes a song in Luke chapter 1. I want you to note this because it's this the longest a woman speaks in the Bible. The longest. And it begins like this. My soul magnifies or glorifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God, my Savior. Mary, most Bible scholars agree, is the first theologian. She is the first to think about, ponder, articulate what the coming of Jesus means. And though she has not yet fully understood what Jesus came to do, she writes a song of what this coming Savior means to the powers and oppressors that be. It meant that a great reversal was about to happen, where God humbles the proud and lifts up the poor, well, there'll be joy instead of sorrow. God, again, was bearing his arm to save. So biblical joy, as we've seen in the story of the Israelites and in Mary's, is choosing to rejoice, anticipating future liberation from all oppressors, sin, evil, death, by God himself. Now this is a great story, isn't it? We can end the sermon here, and it would be, I would say, not a bad sermon, shorter than you probably thought. Maybe some of you would erupt in joy knowing that this is done. But the nagging question in my mind is, as I wrestle with this, and I don't know about you, but what's the difference between Mary's song and a hallmark movie? If you think about it, wasn't Mary just another character from a different backdrop? Nativity scenes grace our Christmas decorations around the house. Isn't that just as manufactured? Designed to put a thin coat of cheer over the season, make things festive. And I remember distinctly. Hearing someone describe their experience of their marriage ending, they said it was filled with tension and tears, lots of tears. And their young daughter, in the midst of everything, started to put band aids all over her body to somehow soothe the pain of their family breaking up. It is heartbreaking to discover at such a young age. There is no bandage for the soul. So what of circumstances like this? Relational strain that we feel more acutely in this season. What of relatives that are never coming to the dinner table? What of conflicts that just never resolve? What of grief and loss? What of genocide and sexual violence? What of unjust wars and deaths of millions? What of silent killers? Like cancer. What about that surprise diagnosis? What about fatal car accidents? What about loneliness this season? What about life stages you thought you'd be at by now, but you're not? How does Mary's song speak into any of these situations? Because it matters. Not just for the skeptics wondering if there is a God. But for the religious and the church going Because suffering is not an if. It's a matter of when. And we aren't spared from suffering because we follow Jesus. We follow Jesus and we expect suffering. But expecting suffering doesn't make the suffering easier. It just doesn't. One such person, reflecting on their experience of grief and unanswered prayer after the death of a close friend, said this, I couldn't see how life could keep going on like normal after this. I was grieving my friend, but I was also grieving the person I was before she died. I always thought I'd be one of those Christians who hits hardship and stays strong, keeps going. I know now that I'm not that person. Have you ever grieved like this? When you experience a loss and pain like this in your life? trite responses and moral platitudes will not do. Responses like pray more, pray harder, just trust God. Assuming that you didn't trust him enough, you didn't pray hard enough, that's why this happened to you. Or some of my personal favorites, blessings come in disguise. There's a reason for everything. My sister Playfully sent me this meme or this comedian saying, why do my blessings need to disguise themselves? Why can't they just come as blessings? And you know, they're really not untrue, right? These are not untrue. But they're often used when we are uncomfortable with the pain someone is expressing to us. We minimize, we blame shift, we spiritualize the way, or we simplify by saying or thinking in our minds it's because of something someone did. You were not holy enough, spiritualized enough, and you've sinned. And that's why this is happening to you. Have you thought of that? I think of it all the time. Like, what did I do this time, God? Why am I suffering this? Jesus does not draw these conclusions easily, and neither should we. Sin and suffering are not always correlated. Just read the book of Job. There's a whole book dedicated to this kind of confusion. Rebecca McLaughlin says this about our experience in suffering. We are much more like children than philosophers. Our pain is real and urgent. It refuses to be soothed by faraway hope. Neat theological answers will not do. We need a robust understanding of suffering. Because I want to say today that our joy is hidden in it. It's tethered to them. They're tightly clasped at the hands, friends even. It's not if we suffer, but when we suffer. C.S. Lewis, we've quoted him often enough times that he probably deserves some kind of introduction. He's an Oxford professor that became a Christian later in life. He went on to write books like Neo Christianity and Chronicles of Narnia. He struggled with the loss of his wife, whom God had also given him later in life. With this surprising joy, went undiagnosed cancer. He reflects on his suffering like this. Not that I am, I think, in much danger of ceasing to believe in God. The real danger is of coming to believe such dreadful things about him. The conclusion I dread is not, so there is no God after all. But, so this is what God's really like. The question of suffering is of utmost importance. Our relationship with God depends on how we view him. And how we view him affects everything else in our lives. Nothing in our lives goes untouched. And so I want to offer a Christian response to suffering this afternoon. There are two ways I'd like to respond. One is free will, and another is Jesus. Needless to say, what I'm covering is a primer. This is a full book that you can read on this. And if this erupts more questions than answers, then that's normal. And there's books that I'd recommend in a conversation and coffee I'd like to offer. Now, to free will. Free will is central to the human experience. Without it, we wouldn't be able to reason, love, or have morality. However, it's a double-edged sword. Because you can choose love and choose rightly, or you can choose wrong or choose hate and do poorly. Again, I draw from C.S. Lewis's thoughts on this. It says, free will is what has made evil possible. Why, then, did God give us free will? The only thing that makes possible any love or goodness or joy worth having. A world of creatures that work like machines would hardly be worth creating. Free will is what makes genocides possible. It's true. But free will is also what makes justice, art, love, and ultimately punishment for those perpetrators also be possible. Now I want to go back to Mary's story. You see, Mary had creamed just like everyone else, and she chose to trust God. Mary is not a silent figurine in a nativity set. She's historic, and she's a real story. She's a young woman with greedy faith and agency. I want you to notice that in the story where the angel speaks to her about how this is all going to happen, how she's going to conceive without sexual intercourse, she she has pushback. She's got questions. Because in our modern Western mind, we want to think that, you know, people back then in the first century are primitive and backwards, right? They'll take anything at face value. They're gullible. They're naive. But Mary had pushback. She's like, how is this to be? Because even in her mind, she knows that doesn't just happen. Pregnancies don't just happen out of nowhere. And on the other hand, the news to her is is thrilling. She's honored to be a part of God's plan. And it means that she will see deliverance in her time. God was on the move, and this was really exciting. But on the other hand, the news is downright devastating. Because at this point, she's engaged to be married to Joseph. Imagine her trying to come up how to explain this explanation she has to give to Joseph. Like, his confusion is inevitable, as is her heartbreak. When you're engaged to be married at that time, to split up is similar to a divorce. And they come from a small town right? When they hear a word that is, there's a divorce and there's a baby, there's only one conclusion they'll draw. Adultery. Adultery. According to Levitical law, the punishment for adultery is execution. Her friends and family would distance herself from Mary's disgrace. She would become a single mom, the village pariah, and facing sure death, at bare minimum. At bare minimum. And yet Mary's words to the angel that night were this, I am the Lord's servant. May your word to me be fulfilled. It is astounding. It is gritty and grounded faith. She then writes a song about rejoicing in God's plans. This great reversal about to happen. And she sensed that it's starting with her. The first theologian, arguably the first believer. She chose joy in the face of confusion. She chose trust before there was proof of life. This is Mary. I admire her. I would go for brunch with her. And I guarantee you, the first thing she's gonna ask me is what's brunch? And when I explain this to Mary and what this means to us, as women, she'll be like, yeah. I have a version of brunch myself. She would get it. I just have a feeling. And I haven't even told her about Galentine's Day. If Mary was just a machine following God's orders, generations after her wouldn't call her blessed. You'd be like, that's what she's programmed to do. You know? That's what Mary's supposed to do. You wouldn't call Marae well-behaved if she's duct-taped to a chair. You would probably call child services on her. God doesn't duct-tape us to a chair and call us Christians. You in church, I'm going to duct-tape you. You're now a Christian. To freely choose God is to love Him. And for love to exist, for goodness to be saved, for joy to be worth having, free will has to be possible. The second and perhaps the most important response towards a question of suffering to the Christian faith is Mary's womb. Within her womb, the author of life writes himself into the story. God's mode of being completely changes, and his divine makeup permanently unifies with a human self to be transformed forever. When Jesus ascended into heaven, he didn't transform back, to divinity, to where he was. But it was changed forever. Think about that Forever changed for us. Emmanuel means God with us, not God with us for now, but he is with us in every way and more. It also means that God is with us in our suffering by entering into it and inhabiting our pain. How do we know this? We notice through many instances in the Gospels, but none more powerfully than John chapter 11. In John 11, Jesus enters into the suffering of his closest friends, truly worthy its own sermon. The drama begins with this. Jesus hears that one of his good friends named Lazarus is ill, fatally ill, yet he chooses to stay back two days. It's puzzling for any reader. Right? This is your close friend, you hear where they're in trouble. You'd come there right away. When Jesus finally comes, he's met with Lazarus's grieving sisters, because Lazarus is now dead and has been buried. Jesus, this is, this is Jesus we're talking once, talking about someone who has remotely saved people from dying without a word. He has healed people with a touch of his hand or even by the hem of his cloak he seems to have failed to come through for one of his closest friends. Confusing, puzzling, and it results in his death. Martha, one of his sisters, said to him, if you had been there, my brother would not have died. But I know that even now, God will give you whatever you ask. I just want to pause there and say, isn't this what crying out in our pain sounds like? An unanswered prayer. Jesus, if you had been there. my friend would not have died. This would not have happened. This would have never gone through. I know you can do it, but where were you in these instances? Right here, the time between Mary and Martha's request for Jesus to come to their aid is a picture of the reality we must grapple with when we are faced with unanswered prayers. Jesus then changes the terms of engagement. He says to Martha, in John eleven twenty six to twenty seven, Jesus said to her, "I am the resurrection and the life. The one who believes in me will live, even though they die, and whoever lives by believing in me will never die. Do you believe this?" Notice what Jesus doesn't offer. He doesn't offer moral platitudes. He doesn't say things like, turn that frown upside down. If only you had prayed harder or followed the ceremonial laws to the T. He doesn't give a reason why he stays back either. And here's what Jesus invites us into. Jesus is more than just a good, moral teacher. He wasn't just giving good advice on how to live a fuller, worry-free life. Jesus was saying he is life. He changes what prayer is about. It's not about manipulating certain outcomes, but choosing to trust a certain person. Choose to trust me, Jesus says. Because really what he's offering is himself, not reasons. He may give reasons, but we're not entitled to them. And that might be really hard to hear. For those of us who want to know that there's a reason behind everything. Because it makes us feel in control. But suffering tells us, loudly in our pain, we are not in control. Your healing is not linear. Your pain is not linear. Jesus is now saying, though, that when we face his life, that his life is more certain than death. He is life in the face of suffering. He is life in the face of sure death. His life now was more sure than anything else in life. Then in the shortest verse in the whole Bible, encompassing perhaps the best response to the question of suffering, it says that Jesus wept. This wasn't just like hidden tears. The passage says he was moved from his guts. Have you ever cried from your guts, from your insides? Have you ever cried out from your insides, his whole body convulsing at the reality and evil of death, and he weeps? This should not be. Jesus bore the moral weight of our sin and the heartbreak of our suffering. In Isaiah 53, they call him the son of suffering, a man of sorrows acquainted with our grief. There are no wounds that he cannot touch or hold because he has held all the wounds of the world. And perhaps no one has said it better than this mother giving her testimony on how she grappled with her son's permanent disability after a really tragic car accident. says, people often think that the reality of suffering is an embarrassment to the Christian faith. But I think suffering is the greatest apologetic for Christianity there is. Christianity gives the most robust answer to suffering that asks, why would a God who loves us allow for us to weep and bleed? Behold Jesus, weeping with Martha, who would later die for Martha, for all of us, when we look at the cross, we marvel. There is a God who weeps. There is a God who bleeds. And by his wounds, we are healed. Advent is about both celebrating the child born to be king in the manger and anticipating this king's eventual return. And where we find ourselves today is similar to The Israelites in the wilderness and Mary with her song in the dark, waiting on Jesus to come. But this time he's coming again and he's coming for good. And you might ask what this looks like. John, the disciple of Jesus and writer of Revelation says this. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, look, God's dwelling place is now among the people and he will dwell with them. is choosing to be grounded in the anticipation of Jesus' return. Our future liberation from all oppressors, sin, evil, and death, that God himself will wipe away our tears and face with the suffering that is sure to come in between, we will be met by Jesus through the Holy Spirit, who promises to give joy in our sorrow, and one day, one day, we'll see him fully face to face. There is joy now, And there will be joy more fully. So joy is anything but passive or defeatist. Or mere cheeriness. It is active. It is gritty. I love Karl Barth's definition of joy. He says joy is a defiant nonetheless. Nonetheless. It is looking at the direness of our situation, the uncertain promises and saying, nonetheless, I choose Jesus. It's feeling the gaping hole of our loss, the grieving and saying, nonetheless, I choose Jesus. It's looking at our nagging doubt, facing all the hard questions and saying, nonetheless, I choose Jesus. Defiant joy is not turning a blind eye to our circumstance or numbing ourselves in escapism or ignoring all the hard questions. It's neither of those things. It's feeling all of it, asking all the questions. It's crying all the tears, letting our circumstances and emotions lead us to Jesus, not away from him as the resurrection and the life. It's what Mary did. It's what Martha did. It's what many followers of Jesus after them did. And joy will always express itself in worship. Tyler Seton, a pastor from Portland, came to Vancouver, I think last year, and he said somewhat prophetically, that when the Holy Spirit breaks out afresh in Vancouver, it will look like the fire joy. Nothing more, nothing less. And I would agree with him. It will always look like worship, breaking out into singing and dancing with childlike faith when it doesn't make sense to do so. Doesn't make sense. Not in our context, not in our day, not in our age. Singing carols, singing heart the herald, singing joy to the world, doesn't make sense. We will sing Mary's song into the night Well, our cry of our heart becomes, my soul magnifies the Lord. To magnify God is not to make him bigger somehow because he's small, but it's to choose to see him, to search for him, to look for him, and and worship him in every situation, though we don't see him. And to make those questions, where are you, God, just as valid as you are, Lord, above all situations. You can have both, to both question God and worship him at the same time. He makes room for all those things. And when we magnify Jesus, we confront our suffering only to be met by his face. And we will be surprised that he's already near. Affirming our pain. Affirming our humanness. And our suffering. And our tears already mixed with his. I want to invite the team up. And I want to end us in this story. It was about um, this time, about four years ago now, that we decided to receive a fertility consultation. It was almost a year, or about a year, when we have begun to try. We've begun to try and conceive with really disappointing results. Month after month, we would grapple with this uncertainty: Are we able to get pregnant? Adrian and I decided that if, pro- if this process doesn't bring us to find deeper joy in Jesus. We finally said, let us wait longer. Because the person we become matters. And trust me, that sounds like a, a more idealized prayer than, than it really is. Some months it's just like, oh man, not again. So we went into this fertility clinic and got an internal ultrasound done. So they confirmed, no baby, no bun in the oven. Also confirmed are the medical realities bodily that I have that prevents me or would prevent me from conceiving a child. So we went home that day ready to start like soft fertility treatments. At least now we have some clarity around like what's going on with my body. Uh, But my time of the month has not yet arrived. And so AJ asked me to take a test. And I said, are you kidding? You were there in that room when they did an internal ultrasound. There's nothing in there. And he said, just take it. I said, fine. And I saw that one line and I'm like, negative threw it away. I went to bed that night, and I had this really vivid dream, a resting dream, that it was positive. Like, I was holding it in my hands, that it was positive.
0: It was so arresting
1: that I woke up with my heart just pounding in my chest. So I went straight to the washer, maybe I'd gone to work early, dug it out from the garbage, and I held out the test, and it was positive. I was like, I guess it didn't wait that long. Also, False positives are possible, right? So I bought like five more tests, um, and it turns out I was pregnant. And you know, I cannot tell you what kind of joy erupted in my heart that day. Just impossible to put into words. Or the joy that bursts when AJ and I held Marie for the first time. There's nothing like that moment. Can I can't describe it? Marie's second name is Carissa, from the Greek word of grace, which is charis which is oddly and perhaps perfectly very close to the Greek word for joy, which is kera. You see, joy is a function of grace. When joy is given to you out of grace, it means it cannot ever be taken away from you. Come what may, joy is given to you, and it cannot be taken away. And the promise of Advent is this, That our deepest sorrow is already pregnant with our deepest joy. Imperceptibly small. The naked human eye cannot see it. Its machines and metrics cannot see it. But it's growing. Because the one who gives us joy is Jesus. The resurrection and the life. Do you believe this? Let's pray. These moments are always so tender, and uh, we'll have time to respond and song, but right now I want us to close our eyes and invite Jesus into our hearts, into the wounds that lie untouched and uncovered, into the hopes that were dashed, into the peace that remains disturbed, and the changes that we continue to grapple with. In the things that haven't yet happened, and you hope would have already happened by now, and saying nonetheless, I choose Jesus. And if that is a deep desire in our heart, that is that is what I know God is outworking in our in our lives. That becomes acutely felt in the Advent season. So I want you to hold that out before and invite him into into those places and situations. And say Jesus, I want to see you and I want to magnify you. But nonetheless I choose you in the face of uncertainty. In the face of everything I don't have control over. And saying, nonetheless, I choose you. (laughs) I choose you. Help us feel all of the Holy Spirit. Help us feel the pain of suffering and the joy of salvation. Help us see but not even human eyes can see. But open the, the eyes of our hearts to see you, Jesus. Come to already inhabit our pain and suffering. Ready to break out into defiant joy. Come, Lord Jesus. Come, Lord Jesus.